And joining us for Pet Chat today, we have our pet vet, David Tabret and Dr. David Tabret. Hi, Jane. What are we talking about today? Today, you know, a couple of weeks ago we talked about some different types, what was it, handbag toxicities. Not when you eat your handbag, but what's in them. But today I wanted to talk about it, two unusual toxicities that we sometimes see. Ooh. Mm. And we're joined today by Julie Tolliday from uh, Barker's In Balance. And Julie? Oh, today I'm going to talk about safety around dogs, Jane. On 2NURFM, this is Pet Chat. It is 16 past 12 and we will be asking for your calls later on. But Bronwyn has jumped the gun and has come in with a great question. And Bronwyn, what is your problem? Well, what the problem is, uh, we have an 18-month-old Maltese Situ. Mm -hmm. Two months ago, we bought another one. Now, it's only about... uh, well, it wouldn't even be two months. It'd be two and a half months old. About six weeks we bought it. And uh, April, he, she was born. But what the problem is, there's been a lot of uh, snarling, you know, the normal hierarchy sort of attitude. But I tried to uh, put our older one, Kitchy, uh, down off my chair, and she growled at me. <laughs> then on the la- I I abused her. I'm uh, sorry. She knows when she's in trouble. Bromwood. And then on the lounge, it happened again, twice. Yes. And I'm just wondering how to uh, handle this. It's not the dog, the pup she's growling at, it's me. Yeah, when it's David here. Look, Hi, the, re- David. the reason I was chuckling, but also there's a couple of things there that straight away stand out as um, causing you some problems. And, mm. and uh, in a way, it's probably been exacerbated by having the other dog there even though you're not saying it's directed to the other dog um you've shaken things up a bit now the thing i always say is people say to me is oh my dog thinks he's a human and i say no he actually thinks you're a dog Mm. okay because otherwise if he thought he was human he'd stand up and walk and talk like a person so i understand what you're saying so they expect us to behave like dogs as well and so you've shaken things up a bit and he's sort of thinking well I, I have to work out where i stand here now whenever they get elevated on furniture or in your arms it actually elevates them in their uh, status and if you like the hierarchy so there's a challenge is that when you come along and move him he's automatically thinking well you're not really the boss of me as much as you think you are okay so he's he's doing this behaviour. Now, what I wanted to ask, and I'm almost going to predict the answer is, when does he get fed? Uh, they're fed morning and night. Morning and night. And how long do you leave the food down for before you pick it up? They finish it. Uh, they finish it? Do they have yep. other food there all day? No. Okay. Well, that's good because you're looking at the amount that you're feeding. Sounds like that's okay. Yes, I do. I measure it out. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, and are the two dogs fed together? Yes, one's fed in the, in the corner of the laundry and the other one's fed near the door in the laundry. Yeah, I would try and separate them a bit more because you may well start to see some squabbles happening. Uh, I think they need to be out of sight of each other. Oh, okay. Okay. And who do you feed first? I feed the uh, pup mm. because that stops her trying to get to Kitchy's. Yeah. Kitchy sits and behaves herself. Because she's and, used uh, to it, yeah. pups all over the place. Yeah. So you're sort of training how to behave around food as well and yeah. so on. I would go back to actually um, trying to reinforce your position without using, um, you know, you're not obviously no physical uh, 
behaviours, like we're not hitting or anything like that? No, I haven't hit her for it. What I did do uh, after the third time, and she really grabbed, I thought she was going to grab me, um, I put her in the laundry, which I sometimes do as a um, behavioural problem, and um, we don't lock her in there. We, We have a gate that she can still see through. Right. And that's where her bed is uh, through the day. We bring it out of a night time. And uh, I say, now you can stay in there till you behave yourself. Okay. And she's been all right since. Well, that's so just, probably the... again, I just want to be sure that yeah. we're doing the right thing. I would first of all say don't let her on the lounge. That's, that's, okay. that's one of the things that when she's on the lounge or on your chair, she starts to think she's higher. I think putting her away and... Uh, away from you for a time is okay. Yep. Um, and so try and separate the feeding so that we don't want to escalate with fights between the two dogs. Yep. Okay. I might just call Julie in on, on uh, giving us some advice here as well. Julie Tolliday f- is with us, and she's got a lot of experience in working in this sort of scenario. Okay, then. Thanks, what, David. What do, what do you think we should... Are we on the right track, Julie? Yeah, I like all of that stuff very much. Um, the other thing I would say, sometimes I do exercises with dogs like this. First of all, I agree with David um, off the lounge and really teach the dogs that their spot is on the floor. Give them a spot to go to. Reward mm. them for staying on that spot. You're going to love your dogs and be prouder of them if you actually have the control to put them on a, on a, on a mat and get them to stay there. Look, yep. and the easiest way to do it is to just get a lead and tie each dog to a a separate leg of the coffee table. Ignore them. Act a little bit impartial to everything. Have some treats with you. And when the dog is sitting, when each dog is sitting or lying down, go and reward them. She won't blame this on the pup, though, will she? No. No. Because she's used to sitting next to us on the lounge. Yeah, no, I promise yeah, you she a, won't. They just don't think. It's of, a different household now, isn't it, really? Yeah. And yeah. look, it's a multi-dog yeah. It's a multi dog household now, and you've got to get the balance right, and both those dogs need to know that they, there's nothing to fight over. There's no point in having a go at each other because you're in charge of everything. And yeah. a little exercise I do, because you're getting little signs of jealousy there, something that I do is I'll, I'll get the owners, even just while you're watching television, have the dogs tethered, and go over and give the puppy a bit of attention. Go and pat it and smooch it a little bit. And yep. not for too long because you want to capture a good behaviour from the other dog. And when the older dog is sitting there and if it copes with you patting the puppy, go give them the older dog a treat. And then yep. maybe smooch the older dog and then go over and give the, the puppy a treat if it tolerates that. Yep. So that they, the dogs understand, you're showing them what you do want instead of struggling with trying to fix what you don't want. Mm. Okay, then. Does this work with kids, Julie? Oh, I taught kids for about 30 years. Yes, it does, actually. <laughs> Positive yeah, it does. reinforcement, definitely. You just yeah, use... that's where I got the um, putting her in the laundry when as punishment because <laughs> I used to send the children to their room. Excellent. Yeah, it is very similar. Um, Bronwyn, yeah. thanks very much for your call. That's great. And uh, we're very happy to talk behavioural problems. We've got other things I, coming. I'm very happy. <laughs> We've got Julie here today. <laughs> This is Pet Chat, and Dr. David Tabret, you're talking about toxicities today. We, yeah, look, winter time, we do see a few more toxicities. I'm not quite sure why, but anyway, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about these handbag toxicities, things like ibuprofen and paracetamol and xylitol, which is found in chewing gum. But today, I wanted to talk about two sort of lesser known 
but I have seen a couple of patients with this uh, at the emergency centre in the last couple of months. The first one is macadamia nut toxicity. And uh, it, not many people know about this one. Um, basically... Well, not many people know about it. We don't really even know what causes it. But if your pet uh, eats the macadamia kernel, um, not the outside shell, but there, it can cause a toxicity. First of all, it can irritate the gut. and uh, But we also see them developing neurological signs and they can develop paralysis. Now, the good news is that it, they tend to get better on their own uh, with supportive care. The bad news is we don't have... Uh, an antidote as such because we really don't even know what the the real toxic principle is so uh, this is the nut that we would normally yeah, sit you down go and, and buy, eat ourselves yeah why would you give your dog an expensive macadamia nut anyway you know i love them um but yeah you see them you know all the shops have got them now uh and they're grown locally as well so they're freely available but uh can be toxic i had someone in the other day and they said they had a macadamia tree and the dog was eating the nuts as they fell to the ground. But I'm more concerned in that case, that's a very hard nut, and that's going to cause a bowel obstruction. But what we're talking about is the actual, you know, the soft, fleshy nut that we eat. So that can cause a poisoning. We have to keep him in hospital sort of 12 to 48 hours on intravenous fluids and sometimes some um, pain relief, uh, but also um, some gut protectants and so on. But as I said, no real antidote as such. Now, the other one's really interesting, and this is grape toxicity. And uh, the reason this one's interesting is because we're getting closer to knowing what causes it, but it seems to... Uh, some dogs will eat grapes fine, not get a problem. Other dogs, they'll collapse with kidney failure to the point where they can die. Now, that's pretty nasty stuff. So, And it's not just grapes, Jane. It can also be... Uh, raisin sultanas so as all well. things from that come from grapes yeah, so yeah. it's not the fresh grape necessarily it's no just the because originally we thought that it might have been a water soluble substance in the grape itself but because it's showing up in the dried fruit then we think maybe it's component of the wall okay but there's work happening on this there is some data that suggests a certain amount is toxic but then you know, a dog A will eat that and not have a problem, and dog B will eat less and get sick. Uh, so, again, can cause gut upsets, but the main problem is it causes kidney damage. So we uh, have to put them into a hospital. We can put them on dialysis, believe it or not, in a hope that their kidneys are going to recover. Um, so that's one of the strategies we can use. But, again, we don't have an antidote. What about wine? Um, well, you know. You haven't been don't feeding share. dogs wine, don't too. You? No, don't share. Don't Just share hang on wine. to it. <laughs> I don't think... And, and obviously, we don't hear about this in people. So why is it in dogs, not in... Yeah, And we only don't know. in some dogs. And, you know, I've spoken to uh, vineyards in the Hunter Valley, and they've all pretty much got their vineyard dog, and the dogs love to eat the, the must, the, you know, the wine... Uh, the the great, pressings. The, the great press pressings. And things. Yeah, and we don't hear reports of... Uh, dogs falling over and, and dying from kidney failure. Uh, predictably, this uh, was first found in the United States, probably because they got a lot more dogs than we've got. And um, we, But we have seen instances in Australia, so it's not necessarily a geographic thing. It's more a population thing that we're not seeing more of them. Uh, but uh, it's a mystery. I don't know what the answers are. We'll Is have to wait. Is it possible to train dogs not to eat things like macadamia nuts if you've got a tree? Well, I guess so, but, you know, the biggest toxicities we see, these are unusual. So they're more likely to be things like don't eat chocolate. Now, we've always talked about chocolate poisoning, so if I was going to train a dog, it would be don't eat chocolate. But as we know, 
chocolate tastes pretty good and dogs love it as well. So we stay away from chocolate. We stay away from macadamia. And we've talked before about onions, garlic, uh, avocados are toxic as well. All of those things, whole list of things. That's great. We can enjoy them all the more. So, yep. <laughs> Keep an eye out. I've got an article on our website about this so that if people want more information, we can provide that for them as well. And that's on 2NURFM.com. And, of course, you can listen to a podcast of this program uh, through our website, 2NURFM.com, Pet Chat, under podcasts. This is Pet Chat, and we are talking about safety around dogs right now with Julie Tolliday, who does a lot with dogs that need their behaviour adjusted. Is that, is that a good way of putting it, Julie? Yes, on modified behaviour modification. Right. Well, so it's good to be safe. It's good to know what to look out for. Yeah. Well, Bronwyn, who called before, was talking about uh, her, um, a bit of a worry about her dog. And, and at one stage, she even said maybe she thought the dog would turn on her. Um, and just a, a few statistics to start that, you know, the Australian canine population is predicted to be about 14 million, no, sorry, 4 million dogs in Australia. There aren't complete statistics uh, on reporting on attacks, but the, the statistics as I found today, about 100,000 attacks in Australia per year. Hospitals treat about 14,000 of those. And of those 14,000, about 1,400 require hospitalisation. Um, and amazingly, 60% of those attacks happen in homes or backyards of families, friends or neighbours. So it's not a random dog on a street going rabid over a kid or a stranger. So it's a known dog yes. and it's in a known place. Yes. Any particular reason why that might be? Well, uh, um, okay, first first reason I always say is that I, I believe that taking dogs into your home is creating a possible culture clash. And the culture clash comes from the, from the position that humans and dogs don't communicate the same way. And unless we learn what the dog is saying to us and teach the dog what we are saying to them clearly, then we are going to have some issues. Um, children who are bitten are usually bitten around the head, face and neck. And if you think about that, that's because the child's eyes are often at the level of the dog's eyes and the, do the child will be reaching out with a hand often above the dog's head where the dog can't see. A lot of this is around fear of the dog. And perhaps, and what, you mean the dog is afraid of the child, or yes, the child is afraid? No, no, no. That the, the the child in it in their innocence has learnt from human culture that eye contact is what you do to say hello. So you come up and go hello, doggy, and reach your hand out because that's what all your human contact has done. But dogs don't want that um, necessarily. So you know, big pointer towards educating people about safety, not just around kids, but humans. Uh, human. I always do that, kids and humans. Uh, they're in the same species. Um, adults as well. Uh, adults are often bitten around the lower limbs and hands. The indication is that there's activity happening again around the dog's head and the dog is lashing out against that. Just to pause for a moment, Julie, um, if you've got a question that you'd like to put to David or Julie today, something to do with the behaviour of your dogs or anything to do with vet-type things, then give us a call, 49216216. So there are things we can do, Julie, about this. Definitely, and I, I have decided that to explain it clearly, there needs to be education of the humans and education of the dogs. 
We need to educate the humans what to expect of dogs at certain developmental stages and how to deal with that. We need to teach them how to shape a desired behaviour without punishing. In other words, let the dog know what we do want and set the dog up for success in training so that they get a clear concept of what humans need to have communicated to them. And to fully socialise a dog. Now, people think socialisation is about meeting people and saying hello, and it's not. Socialisation is about bringing that puppy into the world that it is gets used to everything. So we talk about socialisation with push bikes, skateboards, garbage trucks, loud banging noises, people who are tall, people who are short, people who smell, children who squeal. And the more you expose your younger dog to that, the more you're educating the dog about being robust around change. Now, 49216216 is the number for you to ring if you've got a question you'd like to put to Julie or to Dr. David. And Sue has rung in. Sue, you've got something with your Jack Russell. Yes, I have. Um, I've had him for about a year and a half. I basically removed him from a very unpleasant environment. He's nine-year-old. Now, we have two problems with him. One, if we let him out to play, he just runs away. He just doesn't come back, and we have to jump in the car and chase him. And number two is he will not be house-trained. He continually wheeze in the house. What can we do to, to sort of stop him? We don't actually catch him weeing, so it's hard to yell at him because he does it overnight when he's in and we're asleep. Mm. So it's David here. I'm... You know, I've got a few ideas, but I tell you what, I'm going to toss this one straight to Julie because I reckon she and I think alike, and uh, and she sums it up so well. And I think she's, I think I know where she's going to go with this. So, what do you think, Julie? Okay, so what I hear is that this dog's had about uh, seven and a half years somewhere else in another situation, and that's a long period of time for that dog to have got its concepts about the world. And the running away thing, I mean, I can relate to that. We took on a two-year-old dog and it ran away from us off the lead for years until we had this really strong bond with her. Now, you can do exercises with a running away dog. You can do it on a normal length lead. You can get yourself a five-metre lead, a 10-metre lead. Take the dog in, start in your backyard where the dog's familiar. Let the dog just wander to the end of the lead and call them back happily and be bobbing down as though you're going to greet the dog in play and give the dog a really yummy reward for coming back to you. Then I often get people to take the lead to the front door of the house, open the front door of the house, let the dog go out to the length of the lead let it have a sniff and then call it back happily like you're having a party inside the house and reward heavily like barbecue chicken goes a really long way with with reluctant dogs okay and then on your walk every so often just let the dog go to the end of the lead then call them back call them back and maybe even run backwards a little bit don't fall over don't wear thongs <laughs> when you're doing that and call the dog back and give him a treat again let him know why it's so good to come back. Oh, okay. So okay. before where he was, he was in a small yard. He was actually with another dog. Um, he had no idea what it was like to be on a lead mm. yeah. until he came here. But yeah. I think also, too, as my husband says, I've sucked him because, listening to that lady earlier, he does have his own lounge chair. He's 
sleeps with us, and if you roll over in bed at night and disturb him, he actually growls at me. <laughs> I, look, I could have predicted that, and I haven't <laughs> even got a crystal ball. Okay, so, yeah, your dog does think he's pretty important. You're lucky that he's letting you live in his, ha- in his house. <laughs> um, the toileting in the house, I know he's got no idea about it, but really it's his house, and, you know, in the dog world... They have no rules about peeing. They can pee wherever they like. But this culture clash I was talking about happens when the dog comes into the human's house and the human goes, no, we do not pee on the carpet, on the floor, in the house. Really, your best, I would still try, even though this dog is nine years old, your best clue is to confine the dog when it's in the house. The smaller the confinement area, the better. And really, I say to people in blunt ways, you're trying to fill the bladder up so that when you take the dog out of confinement, put, the, put it on a lead, run it outside, have some yummy treats in your pocket, encourage the dog to go to the toilet, give them a treat if they do. If they don't, take them back in and confine them. And confinement, I mean you can tie them up or put them in a crate. I love crates. Google crating on, on, on the internet. You'll find heaps. Yeah. And, mm. and some people get frightened and they go, Oh, it's a cage. Well, mm. make it, make it look like a little house with a door. Dogs are den animals. They like being in little closed in spaces. They won't piddle in that little closed in space. So another instance of you get a full bladder when you let them out. Go running out into the backyard and encourage the weeing on the grass. Mm. Right, yeah, because I've tried taking him for walks like before we go to bed to try and get any wee out. Yes. And he does do wees, but he always just seems to save one up. So it's directly underneath the dining room table. Uh, it sounds okay. as though you've got some work to do, yeah. Sue. And a lot uh, of work. good luck with that. Now, Leslie's rung in, and Leslie's got a problem with a cat. Hi, Leslie. It's David. Hi, how are you? Yeah, good. What can we do for you with your cat? Um, I actually had the problem just a few hours ago. Um, I've got a 12-year-old cat. Mm-hmm. She's always um, gone to the toilet outside, but the last year or so, she doesn't hold on at night, so I've got a litter inside for her. Now, she uses it sometimes, but in the last month or so, what she's been doing is she's been doing the number two outside the litter on the floor, and, and the wee in the litter. So what I did was I got a second litter tray and put it next to it. Yep. But she's not touching the other litter tray at all. Okay. This is, I want a strangler. This is a very common problem and there's a couple of things I would focus on. So um, when she's inside, she will use the litter tray, but she's sometimes missing the tray. Is that right? No, no. No, she's, she's, she, if she wees in the litter tray... Yes. She scratches it a little bit, but she says, I don't want to do that. So then she, she jumps out of it and then poos on the floor. Okay. All right. And how many cats do you have? Only one. Just one. Um, about six months ago, I took in a stray cat for four weeks, and that's when she did it once before. Yeah. And I rang up the vet, and he said, it's, your cat's not happy. So I, I had to actually get that, rid of that cat. Mm. And okay. then she's been good. But the last couple of months, she's done it four times in about the last month. All right. What I would do, there's a couple of things. Um, at her age, I would definitely get a health check done to look for things like kidney disease, for one, and secondly, for arthritis. Now, we tend to think of bigger athletic dogs as the ones that get arthritis, but we see an increasing amount of cats with arthritis, and that means they're less agile and uh, probably less able to position herself properly um, in and around the litter tray. The second second thing I'd do is make sure you've always got 
uh, a second litter tray there. So the rule is one per... Right next to the other one. That's what I don't understand. It's, it's only like four steps away. Yeah, no, put it somewhere else. Okay? Okay. You need yep. one per cat plus one, and I would have two different types of litter. Okay? okay. Two different ty- types. Okay. Yep. Now, the third thing to do is you get a bigger tray that you put underneath the litter tray. Yep, okay. Okay. And the yep. fourth thing you do is, and you may, this Pick. one, <laughs> yeah, next, the, this gets a little bit more tricky now because those things are pretty easy to do. The fourth thing is you may need to change the design of the litter tray. And that what I mean by that is that you might find a covered tray works better, um, different size trays just to okay. uh, change that environment. Some cats are very sensitive about, you know, they'll pee wherever they like, but if they've got to go poo, no, I'm going to go somewhere else or I'm not happy being here. Look at where the tray is in relation to traffic flow in the house. You know, if it's out in the middle of the room, they're not real comfortable with that um, or, you know, in this, a corridor or somewhere where they can be seen. So sometimes just moving the tray helps sometimes the design of the tray whether you get a covered tray if you want to go the whole hog and uh if it's a case where she's used the litter and she doesn't actually want to go in there she may not like the smell she may not like the feel of the litter on her feet when it you know if it is a bit damp so some make sure you're regularly changing it you can actually if you want to go the whole hog you can get an automatic litter tray which will change the litter whenever she goes in and out of it because it has this special brush thing that Clean, you know, wow. It's, yeah, it's like, um, you know, the, the sweeper things that go along the beach uh, on Newcastle Beach and they clean up the sand and filter it? It does the same thing. It's Pet Chat and we are taking your calls on Pet Chat. Dr. David Tabret, I imagine this one is for you. Michael has rung in with a problem with a goldfish. G'day, Michael. Oh, g'day, mate. How are you going? Yeah, good. What's going Hi. on? Mate, I've got a, a lionhead fish. I've had him for about four years. Yep. Uh, he's in with other comets and, uh, yeah, mainly just comets. It's an outside pond. Anyway, about six months ago, I noticed he was swimming upside down. So, so I've grabbed hold of him, um, and he's, and he's only got one eye. Um, he, he actually had two eyes when I got him. Right. Uh, so anyway, I've left him. He's been feeding all right. Um, but he just seems to swim sort of erratically, sort of upside down. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, the other day, I, I was just walking past the pond and I seen him, he was completely upside down this time, uh, and I thought he was dead. So I grabbed him out of the pond and he's actually got no eyes. So, but he's, wow. he's still eating and still swimming, like he, he turns himself up, you know, the right way to swim. Yeah. And when I throw food in the, in the pond, he, obviously he can smell it or whatever, and he's, and he's still eating, but I just wonder if I can, if I can do anything for him. Um, we see when, when, uh, fish and it's often goldfish anyway, that, um, are swimming altered, like either on their side or, um, upside down, then yeah. we've identified that's a problem with the swim bladder, which is a part of the esophagus that they're right. able to, um, change the, uh, amount of air in there. And it's a yep. buoy- buoyancy device. And sometimes that, uh, the connection to the esophagus gets blocked. And so the swim bladder sort of sits at the bottom of the fish. So if it actually is, remains full of air, um, then it You'll will, uh, yeah, that, that part of the fish will float. So they go upside right. down. And they can sometimes correct it by swimming their way back to normal. But to do that, they need their eyes. Right. Okay. Now, the causes of swim bladder problems, I said they can get blockages, and we have seen that happen. Um, sometimes I've seen fish that have picked up little pebbles and 
they get stuck in that part of the esophagus and can cause a problem. But very often we also see things like infections. And, of course, then you've got the story with losing his eyes. I would be really worried he's got certainly a sort of a flesh-eating uh, bacterial or fungal infection, and that's causing the, the damage to his tissue in his eyes. And yeah, obviously, he actually, he, he actually looks quite healthy. And when I, when I put food in the water, he, yep. he actually he, he writes himself up you know, the, yep. the way that he should be swimming, and he, and he comes up to the surface of the water and he, and he eats. So he's able to use all these other senses. Oh, he, he looks, yeah. he looks nice, like all the other fish are nice and healthy. He looks nice and healthy as well, and he, he's got no eyes. Yeah, I would still, I would certainly get him investigated for the possibility of a fungal or a bacterial infection. Um, okay. Now that's the question is, how do you do that? <laughs> you yeah, might, you, you, you do probably need to speak with a vet who's familiar with um, uh, fish species and particular, um, you know, the smaller f- backyard pond or indoor fish uh, that we keep, um, because um, if you speak with the your local vet, they should be able to advise you if they can do that or they will refer you to uh, a vet who has experience and um, there are some in the Newcastle area. Yeah, um, I just wish I could do something for the little bugger. Like, I mean, he, he seems happy enough, but obviously he can't see where he's going. So yeah, the, if you contact the vets, I reckon they'd be able to give you some information just for starters around things like, uh, and I'm sure you've looked at other things about water quality and so on, but... I would be saying you need to tackle this as a whole pond problem, but the individual fish, uh, obviously nothing we can do to recover the eyes, but um, I'd be concerned that there's an infection going on, and we don't want it to spread to other fish, so it would be very worthwhile to get this checked out. So if you speak with your vet, they should be able to point you in the right direction to um, get that problem investigated further. It may need things like a tissue culture or something and maybe some medication to try and improve that for you. Good question, Michael. And Dennis joins us now. Dennis, you've got two dogs. You've got problems with those? Yeah, they're, they're pretty, pretty good little dogs, um, both females. One's, uh, the older ones are a little shit to Maltese. Mm-hmm. Now, I have a bigger problem with that one because she seems to drop number twos all over the concrete. They're both outdoor dogs, um, but they've got a nice place outside under the pergola and the little houses and that. Um, but she likes to drop drop number two is always on the concrete, which is a one, you know, it's just flies hanging around. It's, it's hard to get tidy all the time, you know? Mm-hmm. It's almost like she likes to, she hates walking on grass. Yep. And and how's the other one? Is she... Oh, the other one's good. The other one, the other one always goes to the same spot in the grass and she's, and she's the only one. She's only about seven or eight months old. That's the... Um, American Staffy, so she's really good, but the little Shih Tzu, uh, no, she, she's the problem with that. Okay. What do you think, Julie, this problem, it's, is, it, is it just simply an extension of the dog, uh, like the ones before that were toileting inside, is that the same sort of thing? I, I, I think it is true that little fluffy dogs sometimes don't want to go on the grass, particularly uh, if it's wet. Okay. Yep. But yeah. the things that I tell people to do is to make sure that you're feeding regularly and the same sort of food so that quite often you'll be able to pick up a pattern for when the dog needs to go and maybe you'll be able to manoeuvre the dog to where you do want them to go, maybe even on a lead, although some dogs don't like to poo on a lead. Um, right. Um, 
but to manoeuvre to the right area, uh, make sure you clean the poos up. Um, use something on the concrete, get the poos up, clean it with some white vinegar and carb soda, uh, uh-huh. and then something that has got a strong smell. Now, I reckon if you can go and buy some fennel, or it comes in the form of wheelie bin cleaner, make up a really strong solution and use a straw broom and really wash that cement with it and leave it on so that it gets a... It's not a bad stink, it's a clean stink, but often (laughs) if it smells like that, the dog's not going to want to eat from that surface. The other thing thing that I tell people to do is grab a handful of dry food every so often and sprinkle it all over the concrete because dogs aren't usually going to poo or wee where the food is delivered and feed the dog on the concrete too. Ah, right, okay. Oh, something to go on with there. That mm. sounds great. Now, Mark joins us. And, Mark, you've got a problem with your cat chewing things he shouldn't. Uh, yes, yeah, so that cat that chews speaker leads and telephone, um, mobile phone cables, Yep. Uh, charging cables, yeah. anything that he just likes chewing. We tried to put some eucalyptus oil on the cable, but it seems to like that too. <laughs> just be, <laughs> I, I would avoid the eucalyptus oil... Um, just I, obviously, the idea is that it's a bit distasteful, but it is also associated with toxicity in um, cats, yeah, as a matter of fact. Yeah. Um, there are various things that you can use, although they may not be compatible with things like speaker leads and telephone yeah. cables. The other thing I have seen too is um, just to, as far as a consequence is that cats can get electrocuted, and I've seen this quite a bit. And um, interestingly, they obviously chewing, and we get we see them with burn marks across their mouth and across their tongue, and then they develop fluid in their lungs through a nerve reflex. So it can be quite right. serious. Um, to try and pro- avoid it, I think really it comes down to providing some stimulus for the cat in its environment that's obviously not leads and speaker cables. So games and toys that are interactive with the cat, the laser lights are good. Um, the feathered on a like a fishing rod type of thing, which you're bouncing in front of them. The only problem yeah, with that, that, got a cat tunnel. Yep. Yeah, I play with it. Yep. Um, but it just comes around. Yep. Even um, you know, the little solar frogs and that you have outside that's chewed all through those cables. Okay. Well, it, it um, a lot of cats do like to think they're killing things, and. Uh, they like things that move around. So you can get little balls that roll around that have got like a fur tail attached to them and that actually you can leave it and it'll run while you're not there. And so that might be another, because the problem would be is that all of those other things I talked about, you need to be there. Uh, So when you're not there, you need something that's ongoing. It's a difficult one. And um, the other thing is you can actually get covers for your cables so that they're tidy and wrapped away behind a big plastic cover. Um, But a few that I've seen in the past, I can't uh, say that we've found real good answers for it. It could be a displacement behaviour too. It just occurred to me that if there's um, some sort of distressing thing in another part of the house or life, it could be I'll go and chew this cable and then yeah, it, no, it sort of varies in different parts. It's gone from the sound sound to the mobile phone charges to the things outside. Yeah. Um, okay, well... A bit. It's about 12 months old. They come from Queensland. My brother has actually come down from Queensland and then yeah. came with us the last few months and brought the cat with him. I'd keep up with the toys, but if you can get, there is one that will automatically, it rolls around. You just turn it on and it'll roll around when you're not there. And otherwise, um, cable covers... 
That's about all. Cable covers sound mm. as though they might be the way to go. I've had the same problem. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. With your cat. Yep. And that's Pet Chat for today. Thanks for all your calls. That's been great. Thank you, Julie Tolliday. Thank you, Dr. David Tabret. New-